Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I believe we have a, a very highly esteemed guest joining us this week. We do indeed. The film critic for the Salt Lake City Weekly and uh, former co-host of the long-running Mousterpiece Cinema podcast, Scott Renshaw. Thanks for having me on. Well, I mean, it's, there's an obvious elephant in the room. There are now two Scots on this podcast. How, how do we deal with this, Cam? <laughs> I think I will be having to refer to you as Agent Scott through the episode. If I'd known, I guess I could have prepared an agent, secret agent name, but I, I'm just going to have to roll with it. <laughs> my, my secret agent name is so plain that it would actually be worse if I chose that. So, I, you know, I'm not going to be called Gary in this one. Um, but Scott, welcome to the show. Uh, for people, obviously, Cam's introduced you a little bit. But uh, for those who don't know anything about you, obviously, you're a critic as well. You used to be on the Mousepiece podcast. Um, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I've been uh, with the Salt Lake City Weekly for 21 years now. And so it's, you know, the fact that anyone has a job in print journalism at this point is kind of amazing, let alone for that long. So, uh, you know, I, I started out in the Wild West days of, of Usenet movie news groups back in the in mm -hmm. the early 90s and kind of hooked up with a lot of folks there who have become friends and, you know, connected at film festivals throughout the years. People like Mike D'Angelo and, and uh, Scott Tobias, who kind of went a little uh, uh, viral yesterday with his take on Shrek. Um, yes, yesterday as we're recording. So, um, you know, I kind of had the benefit of a time when, you know, the internet was sort of wide open and that allowed me to kind of get my foot in the door and, and um, the rest is, you know, 20 plus years, almost 30 years of history. And I've always been curious, um, the Masterpiece Cinema podcast has ended now. Mm -hmm. There's a huge archive people should dig into, but how did you get associated with that podcast? I think largely I was I was a guest a few times uh, for for Josh and his uh, his previous co-host, um, and then when uh, when when that changed and, and they needed a new co-host, Josh knew that I was also a, a Disneyphile that I at that time was in the process of finishing a book on Disney parks fans and was a you know kind of a disney file myself so it just seemed like a good fit and uh, so we we did that together for three years and then you know josh just had you know busy family life that kind of made it necessary to uh to to close things down it was a great run and and i appreciated all that time it was a really good podcast and i urge people to check it out um we actually relatively recently on the podcast did the disney film one of our dinosaurs is missing which was a nightmare. Um, I wish you guys had done an episode on that so I would have a uh, support system to lean on after watching that myself. There was there was never going to be, you know, we were never going to run out of material. Let's just put it that way. No, no. I, I feel like I'm still scarred by that movie. Its only redeeming factor is the carcass was in a Star Wars film. <laughs> um, but pivoting on, Scott, so... Spy movies, and that's what we talk about every week. Um, do you have any particular favorites? Well, I, I, you know, I have a few years on you fellows. I don't know exactly how. I won't ask anyone to to age themselves, but you know, one of my earlier um, film memories is 
I grew up in central California in Bakersfield, California. Um, and, uh, my family, instead of choosing, you know, everyone would buy this kind of home fireworks and shoot off fireworks. And my dad thought that was a ridiculous waste of money. So he said, we can watch everyone else's fireworks and instead let's go out on the 4th of July to see a movie. And I always remember that it seemed for many of those years, they were James Bond films. So I remember that it was, you know, it was uh, Moonraker in 79. It was uh, The Spy Who Loved Me in 77. Um, so, you know, that kind of some of my earliest, you know, positive associations, because it was, you know, it was family movie. And we didn't go out to the movies as a family a lot. It just wasn't something we did. And so I have a lot of kind of affection, even knowing how um, sort of the pendulum swings back and forth on the Roger Moore Bond films. It's it's going to be hard for me ever to to discount kind of the, the 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 warm fuzzies I get associated with seeing those movies as a as a kid. I relate 100% because I was someone who grew up on Roger Moore Bond films and uh, I will always um, support that that run of the series. But I'm curious, um, do you consider Roger Moore to be your James Bond or do you, you know, over the years kind of go back to the Conneries or where do you stand? You know, I don't I don't exactly play the team team whoever game where it comes to that i think the individual films are more in, you know kind of weighing them on an individual basis there are a lot of really terrible roger moore bond films and so it's <laughs> whether you evaluate that as on him exactly i don't know um you know he was a very different kind of bond than obviously connery than obviously uh, you know any of any of those who, who followed him so um you know i i i I like Craig a lot. I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for what he brought to it. And, uh, you know, again, that I, I, I like movies. I don't, I don't play the, you know, I'm, I'm team Connery. I'm team Moore. I'm team Craig. I just, you know, I, I like the individual movies or don't like them individually. If you're, if you're looking at it from that perspective, then could you, if there was one, like a desert Island bond film, which one would you pick? <sighs> I, I think it's, you know, I probably rewatched them all in sequence most re recently, about five or six years ago. Um, I think at the time it was probably Thunderball. Um, and I don't know if I rewatched them again. You know, you're always in a different place. It's, it's like, mm -hmm. it's the old same river twice thing. You're, you're a different person. The, the world is different. Um, but that just felt like it was sort of, it had found its footing. It had had, it had some of those, um, kind of, I don't want to say absurdist exactly, but when it got big, you know, the, the Bond film, the, the Roger Moore Bond films got crazy with the, with the scope and the scale and it hadn't quite gotten there, but it had gotten into some of the more kind of outlandish elements that I, you know, kind of enjoyed from the Moore films while still having a little bit more grounding. So that's probably the closest um, again, although I, you know, I'm, I'm never going to, uh, have a have a harsh word to say about Moonraker. As silly as a lot of that stuff is, um, he's attempting reentry is just never going to not be one of my <laughs> favorite closing lines ever. That's my number one. That is my number one <laughs> Bond line. I, I, I remember hearing that as a kid, and it just sticking. Unfortunately, and I don't even think I really understood it as a kid, but uh, <laughs> I just liked it anyway. Yeah. Um, apart from Bond, then is there any other films that stick out to you? What's on your shelf? <sighs> Well, I, because, I mean, it's, it's interesting, largely because of the function of my job, you know, I have to, I see a lot of movies in a week, so I don't get a chance to rewatch a lot. Um, I think occasionally when I'm 
you know, I, I'll, you know, be zipping by on cable. I'll stop with one of the Bourne films occasionally. Um, you know, I, I, I think I tend to gravitate, gravitate aside from my just sort of nostalgic affection for some of the more outlandish, the, the things that are a little more earthbound and, I don't want, I hesitate to use the word gritty. That's so overused. It's so played out. Um, but I think I like the stuff that, that feels like it has real world consequences. Um, so I, I don't know if that, you know, where, where that puts any specific titles, but you know, that that's, that's something I think in general that I look for is, is something where I feel that there's, it actually could happen and exists in the world with real, with real humans and not as some sort of alternate superhero universe. Right. So something maybe along the lines, even of like a Tinker Tailor soldier spy. Uh, yeah. I mean, and you know, I, I guess there's perhaps a difference between those that you would kind of put more in an espionage category rather than an action spy thriller so i mean those to me feel like almost completely different worlds themselves um but i guess where where the where the you know this venn diagram between those two things gets closest is probably where i exist most a little a little more espionage ish but with just a little bit of that action beat going on too i was really curious to see if you would surprise us with something like condor man or jumping jack (laughs) flash (laughs) uh or the uh you know the the man with one red shoe or you know exactly yeah that was a that was a that was a well that was something i should say (laughs) but uh okay so we've got a connection here so we've we've been talking about bond and the film this week definitely has some bond connections but uh cam what are we doing this week Yes, we are tackling 1998's Ronin, directed by John Frankenheimer, the celebrated director of movies like Seven Days in May and The Manchurian Candidate. So the question always is at this stage, um, what connection do we have with the film before rewatching it? So, Scott, you're our guest. I, I, had you seen this film on release? Did you have any thoughts around the time? Yeah, you know, and it and honestly, this is probably the first time I've rewatched it since I saw it, you know, covering it professionally you know back in 1998 so you know that's a that's a healthy stretch and and you know reacquainting myself with you know it's always interesting to think about what does stick through your stick in your mind and and you know i having more than 20 years of of distance between between myself and the and the last time i saw it the car chases were what stuck in my head i thought of it as a propulsive action movie and so i really hadn't been thinking about the character beats about the 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 kind of more uh the the slower paced moments and so it was interesting really to rediscover that and and uh, sort of get that mammoth flavor that's all over this thing um in in its in its dialogue and in its its storytelling um when that really wasn't what i had thought about in fact i had completely forgotten that mammoth was involved with it at all what about you cam yeah, so this was a movie I remember when it was, um, you know, about to open. My friends and I were all really excited about this movie because um, it was, Uni- it was a, a United Artists film, and they had, of course, done Goldeneye, and we were big into Goldeneye. And there's, you know, a few actors you've cited, Scott, who appear in this movie, who are Bond villains. Um, the trailers were fantastic, and I remember we all went out and saw it. This is kind of late teenage years, and. Um, I remember we all really enjoyed it, but we're also like, well, that was no Bond film. And that says more about us being teenagers than actually anything to do with the quality of the movie. But 
I too very much remember the car chases, and for some reason, I really, really remembered Michael Lonsdale painting oh. samurai action figures. <laughs> <laughs> of all the scenes that stick in your head, huh? that's a, that's an interesting one. I don't know why. Yeah, it's yeah. so strange, but that really, like, even when it popped up last night, rewatching it, I was like, ah, yes, I remember all of this incredibly well. I could just see you shouting out in the cinema, that's Hugo Drax! <laughs> um, I mean, as for me, as it seems to happen almost every week, I had never seen this film, but I always heard Ronin being bandied around when people spoke about Bourne or Bullet or The French Connection just for the driving scenes. Yeah. Uh, which... Yeah, I can definitely see the connection now. But I had heard of it, but I had never seen it. Right. Okie dokie, let's talk Ronin. So, Ronin, your ally could be your enemy. A briefcase with undisclosed contents sought by Irish terrorists and the Russian mob make its way into a criminal's hands. An Irish liaison assembles a squad of mercenaries, or Ronin, and gives them the thorny task of recovering the case yes that's pretty good not bad not I, bad i'd want to watch that film as far as these things go yeah. yeah um well okay cam what's the background on this film okay so this project began life as a script by jd zike um might be zek but um he was a guy it was his debut he had read james clavell's shogun as a teenager and fallen in love with it and loved the idea of the ronin which are the masterless samurai. And so he'd kind of had this teenage vision of a spy film, sort of an espionage film, using kind of the Ronin concept. And Zyke didn't really go on to do a lot. He worked on the Witchblade TV series for a little bit. He wrote the um, Steven Seagal film Pistol Whipped. Um, but this script got the attention of John Frankenheimer, who loved what the concept was. He said what drew him in was the professionalism of the characters and just the fact that it was a very story-driven film. He really emphasized in the quotes that I read, it was not a CG picture. Frankenheimer was very old school, and I think the world of CG blockbusters did not appeal to him in any way, shape, or form. So he mostly used his TV production crew on this film. He'd um, done a George Wallace series, more in the prestige TV realm than the, the uh, network TV realm. And he brought a lot of them over to run this production. Now, before they began production, as uh, Mr. Renshaw said, um, they brought in David Mamet. And Mamet came in to basically punch up this film and it kind of led to a bit of a squabble because um, J.D. Zyke felt that, um, you know, uh, his, or at least his lawyer felt he deserved the primary credit for this film. They said that Mamet really only came in, boosted De Niro's role, added a female love interest, and rewrote a few scenes from there. Um, so it was kind of an ongoing back and forth. I don't know how contentious it really was because... Ultimately, what happened was Frankenheimer, who had made quotes to the press saying things like, the credits should read, story by J.D. Zyke, the screenplay by David Mamet. We didn't shoot a line of uh, Zyke's script. Um, later, uh, Frankenheimer backpedaled, I think because things were getting messy in the press, and released a letter to Variety saying that, no, no, it worked out as it should with the Writers Guild determining that Zyke was the primary writer and David Mamet took the secondary billing in the writing credits. And Mamet, um, they made a big deal of this at the time that he used 
a uh, pseudonym and that he went under Richard Weiss. But actually, he prefers to do this in films where he doesn't have the sole credit. This kind of stemmed from Wag the Dog, which had come out the same year, or just the year before, actually, where there was some issues in terms of credit. So that was sort of the story on the behind the scenes uh, in terms of the writing. Also notable, this movie, as we've said, car chases were a big part of it. Over 300 stunt drivers were involved. Um, Frankenheimer, being old school, used a lot of the techniques he used in the 1966 film Grand Prix, using heavy storyboarding and the old-fashioned camera mounts. He had no interest whatsoever in, as I said, using CG of any type. And the actors were enrolled in high-performance driving school before production began because they wanted authenticity, and we'll talk about whether they delivered on that front. Um, the only other thing to note, really, was the film, in its original ending, featured Deirdre waiting outside the cafe where De Niro and Jean Reno's character are, and then going back to her car and being thrown into a van violently, and you hear the line, this is what happens to traitors. Hmm. And test audiences did not like this ending whatsoever. Um, and so they basically were told they had to change it. They came up with an alternate that was more of a happy ending where she you know, reunited with De Niro. And then Frankenheimer went with kind of a middle-of-the-road ending that didn't fall into either category. So that was sort of the behind-the-scenes. As for the um, production, it was a $55 million film. Domestically, it did $42 million, international $29, for a worldwide total of $71 million, which kind of surprised me because I remembered this movie as being something of a box office hit, but I guess it was more of a, you know, a, I don't know, break-even sort of film. I'm just curious... Uh, uh, Scott Renshaw, did you recall it as being a bigger film than that? You know, once we get far enough in the rearview mirror, it's it's hard to remember where some of these things are that aren't, you know, the breakout hits of any any given year are. And, you know, I, I only remember my own reaction and the fact that it's it's kind of lingered, you know, it never is it never has sort of emerged into in, into a grand scale fan base i mean like a lot of things of this kind it has its its sort of niche audience but i don't remember that it was disappointed disappointing in its in its box office performance nor that you know there was any expectations uh you know sometimes i go back and try to see what else opened around the same time i know this was sort of the fall of of 1998 so it's you know you're always kind of at the victim of whatever else is going on around that time so i guess i you know, at this point, not looking back, I'd be curious to see what it was competing with and what what it might have fallen victim to being, you know, in the same the same audience that might have siphoned away some of its potential um, ticket buyers. So for the year at the worldwide box office, it landed at number forty seven, right between, fittingly, uh, Wag the Dog uh, was just one spot <laughs> ahead of it, the other David Mamet effort, and The Siege, the Denzel Washington drama. The top three for that year. Number one was Titanic, and it's regarded as a 1998 release on Box Office Mojo because of the fact internationally it very much opened in the uh, in the New Year because it opened in the end of December '97 here in North America. But it was number one for the year, obviously. Number two was Armageddon, and number three was Saving Private Ryan. A couple other notables: number 17, at Enemy of the State, the Will Smith espionage thriller, and number 76, the Ray Fiennes Uma Thurman film, The Avengers. Um, I don't know how many people remember the Avengers, but uh, we'll be talking about that perhaps in the future. <laughs> now, Scott Renshaw, you want to come on for that one, right? Like you're a big fan of the Avengers. 
Well, you know, it's kind of interesting because growing up, I was I watched I watched the old Avengers show at the same time that I was a comic book reader reading the Avengers. So it was very confusing to me even at that time. And so imagine <laughs> how confusing it is now. Yeah, no kidding. That film is is very confusing. I can confirm that ahead of time. <laughs> well, the, the, my favorite story involved in that is the Sean Con- is Sean Connery's. You know, I just I don't want to even get into that. It's just the we- the weirdness of his involvement and non involvement in certain things just is is hilarious to me. I distinctly remember teddy bears. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah, killer um, teddy well, bears. Well, watch this space. The Avengers are coming, and not the ones you want. <laughs> And so I just my, my final note on this film, this was the penultimate film for John Frankenheimer. He did some TV work as well, but he only put out one more you know, major motion picture to close out his career. And unfortunately, two years later, that was Reindeer Games starring Ben Affleck. And then he passed away in 2002 at the age of 72. But a very distinguished filmmaker with a really interesting filmography, well worth delving into. Well, it sounds like we have a lot to discuss. Uh, that information about the ending as well, I've made a note that I want to get around to. But um, obviously revisiting this film over 20 years on, Scott, you're our guest, you're up first. W- what do you think now? I mean, I think, as I said before, what sticks out is the things that I didn't remember from 20 years ago, that it is kind of a more a more interesting kind of character piece just by virtue of its, you know, the, the, the double crosses and the way alliances shift and move back and forth. Um, but also it's, there, there were two things that I wrote down specifically that, that I, you know, it, I don't feel like happens very much in my, first of all, there is so much collateral human damage in this movie. You see civilians getting shot and their cars hit in a way that just doesn't happen anymore. You see all, you know, if you see a Fast and Furious movie, there are these crazy car chases, but no one is hurt. It is clear that the things that are going on in this world are causing people to be hurt and killed. And so that was, it was just fascinating to think about how that feels like something that just doesn't happen anymore. You just, you can't have, and when it does, you know, when you have something like, you know, the, the, the recent Zack Snyder, you know, DC films, and you realize that there's all this collateral damage happening and people go absolutely nuts over it and has to be, you know, addressed in some kind of major way. Um, And the other thing being, what's fascinating to me about Jonathan Price's character as sort of who emerges the kind of the, the, the mastermind of, of this whole operation is that if, when you get right down to it, he's really very bad at his job <laughs> and that everything that happens in this thing comes down to how terribly he kind of vetted his crew that, you know, the, the, the Sean Bean character who is obviously completely not up to the task, not being aware that, that Sam, that the, the Robert De Niro character is still involved with, with the U S government and not, you know, just a freelancer at this point. And so again, it's, you're so used to these sort of hyper competent criminal masterminds that you have this guy who's just bollocks is the whole thing constantly. And that, that makes for, it makes things interesting because he just doesn't know how to put together a team for the job that he needs done. I genuinely appreciate you using the British ism of bollocksing. <laughs> That's that's great to hear. I, I love I, it. I wander between worlds. Hey, welcome welcome aboard. But uh, what about you, Cam? What do you think? Yeah. So as I said, when I'd seen this movie originally, I really just remembered you know car chases and painting figures. Um, 
I was really surprised last night rewatching it how much I got sucked into the world of this film and that it is very much a movie of behavior. There's not a lot of grand character arcs going on here. It's all just kind of reading between the lines and the behavior of these strange guys and Natasha McElhone and just figuring out who they are and then watching them do things professionally. And I think what's interesting is a lot of, you know, what Frankenheimer talks about is the professionalism of these characters and that, you know, they're the very focused, capable group of people. And I kind of like that they aren't. <laughs> like a lot of their mission is they have the right instincts, but a lot of the execution, um, as Scott uh, Renshaw said, is it leads to a lot of collateral damage and it's very messy. And I like the idea of these kind of cool, calm customers trying to kind of navigate their way through this very like they want it to be low key they want it to be a very basic mission where they have to steal a briefcase but it explodes all over the place i don't know how this mission would work in a world of cell phones and surveillance they're very lucky this is 1998 because these guys would be nabbed within about you know a day or so but um i just found it so involving in a way that i don't know that it necessarily grabbed me the first time where i was just so drawn in by kind of the terse almost like tough guy poetry dialogue where it's just kind of these little, you know, witticisms tossed about. And just De Niro's ability to ground this film. I feel like this is probably near the end of De Niro's reign of really grabbing audiences in a film. Like at a certain point, we kind of get to paycheck De Niro and we aren't quite there yet. And I was really drawn in just by his charisma as a movie star here and making all of this feel cohesive. Even when the plot... I don't even know if the movie cares about plot, so it's almost like, can you criticize a movie that's so determined to be propulsive and just kind of connect the dots? Um, because it often feels like some of the connections being made are a little thin, but again, so propulsive, I was just sucked in. I suppose, I, I, firstly, I have a confession to make to mm. both of you. Um, Scott, you won't know this, but Cam and the listeners will know, I watch every film twice. Because I'm not very good at remembering things. <laughs> I only watched this film once. So I, I didn't get my second pass, my second analysis to, to firm up my ideas. So there may be, uh, maybe my thoughts are a little bit more loose on this one. But I felt like this film was between worlds for me. It, it felt like it wanted to be this propulsive, fast-paced chase movie when the driving sequences were there. And then they would just be stood still and talking and i had trouble connecting with the film when it stopped it's almost as if my uh you know my need for um fulfillment and completion wasn't 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 being met because it was like i got my adrenaline rush and then it stopped and then i stopped caring as much um you got performances from de niro like you said cam that are fantastic and i can't knock that and i would say sean bean's character of spence wins the uh the uramov award for sweatiest <laughs> person um but yeah I, I i think i struggled to connect with this film and I, I i struggled to sit through the two hours i think it was potentially slightly too long as well i don't know like for me what draws me in is just the fact these are very enigmatic characters and so i spend a lot of it wanting to kind of read between the lines of what they're saying and where their allegiances may be, you know, kind of standing from time to time. I was also really surprised revisiting it, how much I enjoyed the relationship between Jean Renault and De Niro's characters and this sort of burgeoning friendship in a world that doesn't reward friendships. I feel like their friendship really 
developed out of nowhere, though. They just didn't really seem to like each other, and then they were best friends. <laughs> That's how you and I met, Scott. <laughs> it's very true. You were offering me a cigarette. It was a strange scenario. And for some reason, it was yellow. Why were the cigarettes yellow? I don't, I don't get that. Is it a French thing? Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll make a case for the fact that once it becomes clear that everybody else is has their own agenda and is unreliable, that you know that 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 Sam and Vincent become the only people who think you know maybe maybe we're actually professionals who can actually do this, and so it it becomes kind of a wartime. We can't trust anybody else unless at least try to to trust each other. Uh, which again, maybe that proves not to be such a wise idea in Vincent's case because Sam is lying to him the whole time. But that this is this is something that is forged kind of out of a sense of you know if you don't have anybody to have your back, then then what have you got? And so when when Sam does you know redirect that bullet that was intended for Vincent, and and when when uh, you know Stellan Skarsgård's character is is running them through the arena at Arles then you know there's at least something there that you can kind of hang his you know his trust on well this guy took a bullet for me at least i've got somebody perhaps i can count on i could i i can buy that angle at least i i can see where that's coming from i just i was definitely invested in robert de niro's character and he is i would say the protagonist of this film um which is tough because he's also operating without the audience knowing his story throughout virtually the entire film so you know it's hard, it's interesting for the audience surrogate to be someone whose whose real agenda is not known until the last you know 15 20 minutes he's an incredibly aloof lead character which again drew me in and i don't know that it drew me in as much in 1998 but just the fact that it's a long time before we even really realize he had affiliations with the cia it's a lot of him, you know, just saying, oh, I just want a job and basically dismissing any sort of attempt to get into his backstory. And that just made me all the more interested in just watching his behavior and scene to scene and just seeing how his relationships and his reads on these guys works. Like there's a scene where he sets up this little coffee um, cup trick to, you know, find out what the sort of the reflexes of Stellan Skarsgård's character is. And I found little bits like that really interesting to read into this character who's obviously a very analytical type we see off the top he's hiding a gun outside of the bistro because he wants to be able to escape a place he's not sure about a lot of it is just all done physically and De Niro's an actor we look to for a lot of these very you know captivating go for broke performances and stuff like Raging Bull or Taxi Driver and to see him playing it so cool here really did draw me into that character what did you guys think about the the scene where he's pretending to be in a, a couple with Natasha McElhone's character Deirdre um, <laughs> when they're going around the hotel and having the photos taken? That I found that to be a very strange turn for De Niro in the film. He's all cool, calm, and collected the rest of the time. Again, I think it shows how good he he clearly is at what he does. You know, he's trying to set up a scenario where he can take photos without being you know without being obvious about it. And and I do love the bit where he. You know, he sets up the sign to to fall so that it can, you know, give him a sense for how good these guys are at, you know, dealing with a, you know, potential gunshot or a crisis or, or you know, an unexpected situation. So there's <clears throat> everything about that scene really sets up. I mean, the, you know, uh, Cam, you already mentioned some of the other examples or the, you know, the example of him trying to set up 
how he can know who Gregor is, the the bit where he sets the coffee cup on the table and backs Sean Bean into it. So there's there's a lot of that that kind of uh, se- sense of his eye for detail in in getting what he wants out of a situation. Yeah, like um, one of the bits that I really thought was fantastic about that whole scene where he is going to the um, the hotel there to get the photos was just how he kind of plays it as a doofy guy on vacation. Like it's a character we've seen be so cool and cold and kind of hard as granite. And suddenly he puts on this kind of dorky kind of smile like, hey, I'm on vacation. I just want photos with my wife. Keep taking them. This is great. And I kind of enjoy that this character is an actor and he's playing a role throughout this film. And this is the moment where we get to see him kind of shift the performance style. And uh, it's something we only get to see really that one time. And I think it really does work. And I think Mechahone is really on board for this scene as well. I think they play off each other well. I far enjoy their dynamic here than I do when I'm expected to buy that there is actually some sort of romantic interest. I did not feel the heat coming off, you know, 55-year-old De Niro and 28-year-old McElhone. No. Poor, poor, poor choice. That, that, that felt like perhaps the, the worst choice that was made in, in the structuring of the, of the film was to give that any kind of significance. Well, that leads me back to a question about when you were talking about the briefing in the beginning, Cam, about the film. After they did the test screening and then the rewrites as well, was there was there not a female character in it originally? Was it just the guys? Seems like Mamet added that aspect because they say that he was solely responsible for the female love interest. So I'm wondering if the McElhone character was um, just didn't exist at all or if it was a male character or what. But um, it seems to me Mamet was the one behind much of that stuff. Maybe Jonathan Price's character was the the person hiring them. I mean, it feels like based on the way that the structure evolves, that the fact that there was some kind of intermediary between Price, between you know Seamus and the the team was necessary because otherwise De Niro Sam would have grabbed him initially. There, he he was always that was always his goal, and he was always kind of out of arm's reach. So whether the initial intermediary character was male or whether it was a female character, but there wasn't any romantic element. It seemed like there had to have been something there to create that distance between Sam and Seamus. I agree. You want the mystery as to who Jonathan Price's character is and the fact that he gets to operate sort of on the margins throughout this film. I think you need that, that, you know, that character that's standing in between them. And so much of this movie is characters talking about, how they don't know who their employers are or they don't even have an employer necessarily. They just want a job. And, you know, uh, De Niro keeps referring to the man in the wheelchair, sort of these, um, you know, kind of shadowy figures who who could be controlling things. I think you always want that in this movie. So I just wonder if the McElhone character was a male character. Um, I'm just curious from you guys too. Did you pick up this movie's made in 1998. This is a couple years after the Tarantino explosion with Pulp Fiction. If you kind of felt a little bit of um, almost like Reservoir Dogs energy in some of those scenes where the guys are hanging out and we're getting these, you know, a lot of character delivered through behavior and little, you know, witty asides. I, I do remember that being a conversation even at the time, not necessarily even so much with Reservoir Dogs, but with the the mystery briefcase being something that's like, oh, they just did that because Pulp Fiction did it. And so, you know, I, I do remember that kind of being 
discussed on the periphery that it felt like this was something that was you know kind of being cribbed from a from a successful film did any of that jump out to you scott i i didn't make the connection but the briefcase or not the briefcase the box i should say is something i did want to speak about because i don't really feel the tension in trying to obtain it not that it was de niro's end goal but Obviously, we never even find out what it contains. And it does have that mystery, I suppose. But I suppose I would have liked to have known the stakes of obtaining it. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I I think in, you know, you've done enough Hitchcock, I'm sure, to know in classical MacGuffin terms. That's, you know, Mm -hmm. what that thing is doesn't matter as much as the fact that it is the single most important thing to everybody involved in this in this movie and so you know it could contain nuclear codes it could contain the you know formula for a you know nerve gas you know it doesn't matter it just it's clear that it is important as a weapon of some kind in various international squabbles and so whether that thing is is going to you know threaten the entire world at that moment just doesn't to me it doesn't matter at all and i'm i i'm fine with that yeah like it didn't phase me either it you know it's along the lines obviously hitchcock clearly but also you know we're fans of the mission impossible franchise like what is the rabbit's foot in mission impossible 3 um to me the suitcase thing i think i probably would have cared more about the suitcase maybe the first time i saw the movie but this time it was it didn't really matter so much as it apparently had a lot of importance and they wanted it badly. And so it's not like the whole time they're talking about the, uh, you know, what could be in the suitcase. It's more about how do we deal with this situation now that the suitcase mission has fallen apart and how are we going to reposition our efforts to get it back? That's the sort of thing I cared more about, uh, more about attaining the item than actually what the item was. I think I wrote down towards the end, I'm convinced that, this has a recipe for soup in it. <laughs> it's just that the Irish want their soup recipe back. You know, they're just they're just very particular about their soups. <laughs> well, it did uh, bring stability back to the region, so maybe, maybe you, you never know. <laughs> Comfort food, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, okay, so in terms of other things that I enjoyed about the film. I would say the car chases. I think we have to talk about the car chases. I think this film was designed around having these action sequences. Yeah, I mean, the car chases in this film are unbelievable. And it's so interesting to watching the movie now versus back in 98, where back in 98, I lived in a world of practical action films. So like the idea of seeing real cars doing extraordinary things wasn't unbelievable to see in a movie. Whereas watching it now, where, you know, uh, I've seen many Fast and Furious movies over the years, and the amount of CG going on in these sequences, watching this one last night, it just felt like the return to great days of analog action, where, you know, John Frankenheimer was not young when he made this movie, and a lot of the time, people would get excited about the fact that, you know, these older directors are doing amazing practical action. You know, look at George Miller with Mad Max Fury Road, but it's like, no, it's because they know how to do it. And a lot of uh, newer filmmakers tend to fall back on CG or, you know, more updated techniques. Whereas the old techniques, the craftsmanship here, it's unbelievable. And I think holds up seamlessly. And I, and I think what's also interesting is, you know, they simultaneously feel like they go on forever. Like this thing is just, this is such a centerpiece. I, I think the, the, the second chase, I actually timed it was, was seven minutes. Um, so from, from the, from the moment they kind of, you know, begin the, the, the bit where, 
McElhone kind of takes off and they start that chase. It's only seven minutes. It feels a lot longer. There's a, but it's also one of those things that makes it feel longer is there is so much variation within that chase. There's the wrong way component, which, you know, it kind of becomes, it seems like part of every significant chase in, in movie history involves someone going the wrong way at some point, right? It's that that's kind of a, a necessary step in the, in the car chase process. Um, But again, all of the other, you know, the, the collateral damage of other cars and all of these things going involved that, that, he finds enough variations on what can happen over the course of this, that seven minutes feels longer in the same way that a day feels longer when you're doing a lot of other things and not just sitting in one place. So that, that to me is what made it interesting is not just, boy, it's a practical effects car chase, which again, with a 20 year remove is kind of interesting enough, but that there are enough unique components within that, that it keeps it, keeps it, fresh as it's moving through that seven minute sequence i i i was in again two minds about these these car sequences i could see that they were practical effects and you could tell there was i think a scene where de niro and McElhone are in a car and they look entirely terrified as they're racing through the street <laughs> I, I i was hoping cal would say that they had like professional stunt drivers and stuff but it seems like they did their own driving at certain times and i can i can understand oh no no they they had professional stunt drivers. The cars, I believe, were actually um, they had them reversed where the steering wheel was. So there were stunt drivers in the on the right side of the car. I guess the British side of the car, and you had De Niro sitting there, yeah, in front of a wheel. Like they, I'm sure they did little bits and pieces. I believe um, Skip Sudeth, who played Larry in the film, did a lot of his driving. He was very insistent on that, but. When it came to the real crazy stuff, they had um, very highly trained stunt drivers doing that stuff. But were the actors in the car with them being terrified? They were a lot of the time, yeah. Oh, perfect. Yeah, because they, they definitely got that bit through. I, I was laughing seeing their faces and their eyeballs just popping out at uh, how fast they were driving. Um, and they look great. But one thing that troubles me um, is this... I've seen, as, as Cam said, I've seen plenty of Fast and Furious films. I've seen all the Bourne films recently. And they've all got similar driving sequences. And is this propulsive enough to keep your attention for seven minutes? And I wonder if it is anymore. Is this enough to to fulfill that instant gratification that I, I, I crave so much? I mean, it was for me because what grabbed me was um, there's a real viciousness to the um, driving here where you see a lot of the collateral damage looks very severe. And when I watched some of the Bourne sequences... Um, you know, there's the great chase in supremacy that we've highlighted. It's propulsive for sure, but it also feels like a lot of it, you know, it's a little more clean cut in terms of there's not a lot of collateral damage. There's not a lot of messiness. Whereas here, it felt very real to me in a way that a lot of the others don't. And this movie has a sequence where they're driving under a bridge, very much evoking the French connection. It should be said, um, John Frankenheimer directed the French connection too. Not as fondly remembered as The French Connection, but it's a decent enough film, I suppose. But uh, it feels like it very much is that old school approach to these car chases. I guess it just depends on what your sensibilities are, but it very much worked for me. Yeah, and it, I maybe it is in part because of all that has intervened that it feels like going back to this is kind of a breath of fresh air. It did. It actually also made me want to go back and revisit one of my other, you know, you mentioned, you know, 
the French connection and Friedkin, the, the car chase into live and die in LA is one of my, and I haven't seen that in many, many years. And it made me want to go back and see, does that have the same impact or, you know, what does that kind of change my perspective on what has, what has happened over the intervening 20, well, in that case, and to live and die in LA 30 plus years. That's a great movie too. And I do think like Scott, there is something to what you're saying um, where um you can look at some older car chases. Like I remember watching Bullet and that one's famed for its car chase and being like, well, I don't know if this one holds up as well, but I don't know. There was this Ronin one really did work for me. I remember you saying in our, um, in our Condor Man episode of, of all things to reference, there's a quite a prolonged car chase in that. Now yeah. th- this film had no secret ramp or, you know, machine guns or laser guns on the cars, which is, which is fine. But you said that that film reminded you of um, Bullet. Yeah, yeah. Like, and I, I, and and you've made the connection on this film now, so I'm kind of scared to watch Bullet. Bullet's a good movie. I'm just saying, like, when it came to the car chase, it was very much built up for me when I saw it. And just compared to other things going on at the time, it didn't grab me as much. I feel like French Connection is a film where the car chase really, really does hold up. I actually watched that movie... Uh, rewatched it a couple years ago and was blown away how successful it still is. Whereas Bullet, not as much so for me. But I do appreciate any te- uh, any attempt you can get Scott to remind me of Condor Man, one of the uh, great car chases in cinema. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I do think that the location can make a lot of difference. You know, with Bullet, those you know those steep San Francisco hills were a big part of the appeal of that. In addition to kind of being a little bit revolutionary and having the the interior, you know, car cameras. So, you know, I think that if you look at the kind of the geography that's being used, if it's not interesting, then I can understand how that doesn't feel quite as visceral if you don't have that same, you know, if, well, they're just going through a bunch of freeways and tunnels and, and that doesn't have the same impact as, you know, these sort of, you know, looking like you're going riding the waves going down, you know, Lombard Street in San Francisco. The only other scene I had to highlight that I think was probably the pinnacle for the film for me is the whole scene with, first of all, Robert De Niro doing surgery on himself, which is yes. great. <laughs> and then followed up directly with the Michael Lonsdale painting the Ronin scene, which I think fantastic bits of cinema. I mean, the the it's kind of left to Michael Lonsdale to sort of be, you know, the not exactly the Sir Basil exposition, but it's close. It's the, I'm going to explain to you now why the significance of the title <laughs> Ronin is, is you know, important in this whole thing. Um, but he's so good that he makes it work. You know, he doesn't make it feel like that's just a, you know, a, a thematic exposition dump. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, the, I, I, I have a pretty, you know, cast iron stomach after you know 25 years of film criticism but i you know there are times when i'm like okay the 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 appropriate finish to that scene is i'm gonna pass out now that's just a great kicker yeah no kidding i mean there's so many films that would really dive into the gore of a situation like this and uh you know i'm sure even at the time they would have been doing a lot of sequences like this but there's something about this one where it's so clinical the way de niro's talking Jean Renault through the sequence and just like you can feel the tension coming off Jean Renault he doesn't really know what he's doing and just the sound effects of them trying to you know grab the bullet inside De Niro oh it totally makes you squirm in a way that Gore wouldn't like Gore you'd kind of go like okay well that's pretty gross but like this one is working on a tension level and you can see a lesser film having potentially uh, Natasha McElhone's character in the background maybe screaming or something 
when when she sees the blood. <laughs> uh, at least it doesn't go for that cheap that cheapness. No, no. And I think that this is another example of what you know when we were talking earlier about the relationship between between Vincent and Sam that you know Vincent trusts Sam after he you know basically risks his life for him, and then Sam trusts Vincent because he saved his life by being able to you know pull the bullet out. So I mean, I think that th that becomes a really important. There's almost an there's an intimacy to it that I mean I'm not going to go full like it's a it's sort of a sexual thing, but you know there's there's an intimacy to that moment that realizes you're putting yourself entirely in this person's hands and you have to trust that they're going to be able to do what what you need them to do. Yeah, I mean, I thought this was probably the showcase scene for, in terms of De Niro's performance, this is probably the moment that jumped out to me the most and that I'm just going to pass out now was great. I mean, it's a also a moment of vulnerability for De Niro because he's a guy who's always playing calm and collected throughout this film. He's always kind of on the ball. And it's a moment where he's actually willing to basically go to sleep in front of these guys. He's going to conk out and he's not concerned that something bad could happen to him. I, should, I think it shows the comfort level between the characters at this point. One person I think we've spoken enough about so far is uh, Stellan Skarsgård's character of Gregor. <laughs> I have never seen him play anything this slimy or devious before. I'm pretty much used to seeing him in the Thor films. So um, this, is, this is refreshing to see. He was pretty disturbing in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't that cuddly in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I want to watch that now. <laughs> You're not selling it to me there, Cam. Ooh. Or um, uh, Nymphomaniac, he wasn't so lovable either. Um, I don't know, like Stellan Skarsgård's a guy I've seen play weird, but this was maybe my first time running across him in the movies back in the day. I think it probably would have been, because um, I think Deep Blue Sea came the next year. <laughs> um, but... Uh, this is a really interesting character. I think touches on an aspect of the movie that is never really, um, it's never really spotlighted, but it's always there under the surface, which is the morality of these characters. These are all guys who are on a job. They all have shady backstories in one way or the other, but it's kind of the levels they're willing to go. We have a sequence where he's sitting there aiming a gun at a child on a playground. Mm -hmm. And it's on one hand, the movie saying, this guy's the worst of the worst. Like, he's clearly the villain as opposed to these other guys who have been in shootouts that have seen, you know, a lot of bystanders get shot. Like, clearly this guy's the worst. But it also does underline just kind of the lines all of these guys have and how they've been corrupted by these um, very amoral organizations they've been a part of. Yeah, I mean, and you know, I was I was already doing enough stuff that I was familiar with, you know, Skarsgård from, you know, Breaking the Waves and from the from the original pre Christopher Nolan version of Insomnia. Um, so, you know, he, I had I had seen him in some things and and Good and Goodwill Hunting. He'd already been in Goodwill Hunting at that point too. So, so it, he wasn't a completely unfamiliar, but this was definitely a a more sinister version and you know i think those are the things that kind of lead you to go this is this is a guy who really can do anything and you know i and i it's great to have that you you kind of in a movie like this you need the guy who is clearly willing willing to do anything to get what he wants and you know that he makes he makes for in that way kind of i mean Although he's not the big bad as it sort of evolves, he's not, you know, Seamus is sort of the, the big fish in this. But as I said earlier, Seamus is kind of inept at what he's trying to do, whereas Gregor is much more competent and 
even though you know he gets the the crap kicked out of him for a while there but you know he's he's still a a, a pretty dangerous dude He's also the one that just on a visual level, you wouldn't read to be the most dangerous guy in the room, which I think, I mean, it's not a, a new trick to pull in a movie, but I think it works really well here. Well, it worked on me, so uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I, I might be the idiot here, but that's fine. Um, <laughs> I, I've got to say that his, the way he's uh, dispatched from the film, mm. I did not see them pulling the trigger and that, you get the little bullet hole and everything. That's, uh, that, that image will probably be the one that stays in my head. And his too. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, okay. A couple of a couple of nitpicks I might throw out there. Do, do you guys? I said it earlier, but do you guys think it was the right length or too long, too short? Maybe I'll throw it out. I thought it moved. Like for me, the two hours pretty much flew by, so I didn't have an issue with length at all. In fact, I was actually surprised sitting down to watch it, that, that it was only two hours, because just my memory was that it had more of a, a grander uh, runtime. Yeah, similarly, I, I, I thought, I guess in my in my head, because I'm thinking about these these huge long car chases that it might have been. I mean, because of the nature of it, there's a, there are stakeouts and there are, you know, you know, Scott, you mentioned it earlier, that there are, there are moments where it seems like there isn't, there isn't much happening except people waiting for the next thing to happen. And, you know, that kind of happens in the, you know, the scene where, where De Niro and McElhone are, are kind of staking out and they have their, their little, you know, intimate moment there. Um, I, I didn't have a problem with the pacing. And again, perhaps that's because I'm used to, you know, once I sort of got, Oh yes, right. The mammoth thing. And I'm, and I've, I'm okay with just sort of writing along with the, peculiarities of the way that his dialogue works and that's interesting enough to keep me going even when there isn't anything you know physical happening on screen that's that's fair enough i i think i uh i probably would have chopped out 15 minutes of it but i don't know where i would have got the 15 minutes from i think it's just one of those films where i was checking my watch about i don't know 70 minutes right i think it's also interesting that this movie comes out in 98 and um Maybe that doesn't seem particularly interesting, you know, at, uh, you know, now, like people just be like, oh, sure, it's a 98 movie, whatever. But you think about the fact, like in 1996, Michael Bay's The Rock comes out and really does change the face of action. You also have a lot of the John Woo stuff coming in. So like this movie, even at the time, felt like kind of a throwback to an older era. And I mean, maybe for you now, like it, it feels that much older because even in 98, it felt kind of unique. I, I agree. I do think that we were beginning an era where that kind of that that quick cut, rapid edit version that that Michael Bay style and and all of his you know all of the others that were in that you know Bruckheimer um, stable uh, you know Tony Scott and and you know a lot of others that you kind of started to feel that that was the way action movies were going to be made and that this definitely had a different a different rhythm and this was clearly a rhythm that that wasn't going to connect with everyone at that point. And didn't, judging from the box office, like it was a very, yeah. you know, modest to mediocre performer just in terms of grabbing audiences. So it, it almost became, I think, more of this kind of unique kind of curiosity for fans of the genre. Mm. So I, I can understand that. I just, um, <clears throat> I think one of the things for me is it just didn't feel like it earned the two hours and I was not particularly invested. But hey, ho, as you say, it's not particularly for everyone. Um, did any? Does anyone know, this is a general question to it. Does anyone know Natasha McElhone's 
origins. Is she Irish? Because the accent was bugging me the whole time. Um, I remember she was in the Devil's Own, I think, the year before. Um, and- I, I would, I would kind of have to go back and look. I, I believe so, but because it's not, I think it's. She's actually from Surrey, England. Okay, they don't talk like that in Surrey. Yeah, you're the specialist on, you know, Scott, you've got to answer. Would you say like that this really was a grating accent? You see, for me, I've said many times, I'm an idiot when it comes to recognizing good or bad accents. You can only, you know, to me, uh, something like uh, something like um, Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves will jump out to me or Keanu Reeves in Bram Stoker's Dracula. But uh, Natasha McElhone sounded completely fine to me. But that's also uh, just because I do not have the ear for that. It just, for me, it, it sort of walked the line of a character. Okay. I, I almost felt like she was going to talk about her pot of gold. <laughs> um, so, but as you say, Cam, I, I'm not really local. London is nowhere near Ireland, but I, I hear the accents more often, I suppose. Well, how was um, Jonathan Price's accent for you? Somehow that worked. And even though I'm, I'm more used to seeing him in, uh, as we mentioned earlier, Jumpin' Jack Flash or, uh, or Tomorrow Never Dies, with a British accent or an American accent, that that one didn't seem to rub me up the wrong way. It, it seemed fine, but maybe that's just because he's been acting longer. He was, he was a stage actor for a long time as well. Perhaps he's just a bit more used to doing accents. Yeah, like either one worked for me. They didn't pull me out of the movie at all. Um, I, I didn't really have an issue in, in that regard across the board, but I, I was also curious. I mean, I touched on it up front in terms of the plotting. And... Um, a lot of it works for me, but there is like bits at the end where how we're getting to the ice skating rink and the big exhibition there. Did that jump out to anyone as like, wait, how did we get here? This seems a little threadbare. How big is ice skating in France? <laughs> Everyone seems to have a pair of ice skates. Clearly bigger than we, we knew. I could, bigger than I ever knew before then. Although, I mean, I, I, I did like the casting. They definitely, you know, decided to go... Go for authenticity by getting Katarina Witt to be their, you know, their ice, ice show queen, and take that fall. <laughs> yeah, fair play to her. I, do, I, it was just weird that they chose to have the film revolving around this little box that's meant to have ice skates in it. It could have been absolutely anything. I, I, I have yeah. to assume someone in the production was just a fan of ice skating. Possibly, possibly. <laughs> um, uh, but. I, I did enjoy that the movie, because they established that De Niro's character knows everything, like he's very smart and can, you know, connect dots very, very well, that the fact that his character is the one saying, okay, well, how do we find the Russians? Um, Okay, probably at the ice skating rink. (laughs) And it's like, and I go, (laughs) okay, well, obviously, like, he's a lot brighter than I am, so I got to go along with him. But it is the sort of thing that after the fact, you're like, hmm. I feel like this movie was really relying on its pace and its tension to pull me through some of these story details as opposed to them feeling that organic to where we're going. But wasn't that really the the contact that, you know, the the guy they, they talk to who says if you're if there's Russians in Paris right now, they'll be at the you know, how he knows that that's a separate <laughs> issue, but it's not it's not Sam who really comes up with that. He's sort of following the lead of his of his you know, his his advisor or his, you know, his snitch <laughs> maybe maybe it's just a case of they were getting towards the end of the film and like hey we need to have these character scenes and let's just connect them really quickly oh i guess sam knows it okay fine 
But it's also like, let's get to the fireworks factory. Let's not draw this out too long. And I think it works. I don't need an extra five minutes of them delving into the history of ice skating popularity with Russians occupying France. Well, I, I thought using the fireworks fa factory was just something Josh and I did all the time. But I'm glad to see that that's still, it still has cultural currency. You have wormed your way into my brain, apparently. I guess so. The only other thing I was going to point out is, obviously... Some of the films we pick are potentially spy adjacent or barely a spy film at all. I'm looking at you, Men in Black International. <laughs> um, I'd had trouble understanding the spy plot until the CIA element comes out much later on in the film. But even at that point, I think it's quite loose. Um, how can we justify this as a spy film? I would say, like, the fact that it reminded me a little bit of Where Eagles Dare, which we did a while back, mm. where we really don't know what's going on throughout the, you know, throughout the film until Richard Burton reveals himself to be an intelligence agent. And this whole thing is a double, no triple, no quadruple cross kind of scenario. Um, for this movie, you're right. Like, a lot of it does play like a heist film or in some ways a crime film. Um, but it's the reveal ultimately that this was entirely a spy mission on the part of De Niro to essentially help stabilize Ireland. I think that does make it a spy film. We're actually seeing a guy on a spy mission throughout the course of this film. I don't know that I can add much to that. I think it's ex that's exactly the case. And it's, it's a very unique case because it's, it's something where an undercover operative is so good at being undercover that we in the audience don't know that he's undercover until he lets us know. So, you know, that, that is, that I guess alone should qualify it. It's like, wow, this is, this is a great undercover spy movie because it's about an undercover spy who fools us too. And there's like little tricks he has throughout the movie that draw attention to this, like where he's like taking his notes on newspapers and things like that. Like they very much underscore that this guy has sort of some sort of background that's unconventional and seems based in an in uh, intelligence world. It, I think of all the films I probably should have watched twice. This was this was one of them. You know, I, I sat through <laughs> Men in Black International twice. I sat Good through Lord. the Charlie's Angels pilot twice. Good Lord. For this podcast. <laughs> but but this film, you're both you know, sitting there you know, smoking your cigarettes going, yeah, second viewing, it all just made sense. <laughs> I'm just here like to be fair <laughs> to be fair it was like 20 plus years between viewings for me so don't credit me that much for my initial viewing same I, I to be I, I will give you all the credit in the world for me it's like I've got little notes on the wall and they're like pinned with bits of string going between them trying to figure out the plot of this film and it isn't that deep of a plot uh, I'm just that dumb of a person maybe you'll figure out the Zodiac killer along the way anything is possible <laughs> I don't think the plot really matters. So much of it is just, are you sucked into the experience, kind of the fly-on-the-wall experience of hanging out with these guys and going on the run with them? Like, to me, that matters so much more than connecting the dots. Because believe me, there was moments where I was going, wait, what? Like, for example, when De Niro grabs the, um, the case and says, you know, he grabs it away from... Um, I think it's, I can't remember who it is, if it's Jean Reno or someone else at that point, but they've basically been double-crossed by Skarsgård, and there's a bomb in the suitcase. And you get a quick shot of De Niro's hand, and then him grabbing it and, you know, throwing it away, and I'm like, huh? <laughs> I had to rewind that bit. I'll admit, I had to rewind that. And obviously, people didn't have that option in the cinemas, so I, I could see that confusing some people. 
I mean, they do touch on it later, and it all makes sense, but it's the type of thing that in the moment, you just need to know they've been double-crossed, and that's the situation. For me, it works on that level because I've been drawn so into the world. Well, I, I suppose I'll throw it out to sort of any other notes, um, any standout performances. One thing I've written down, uh, and this is a, a question to anyone that's been to France or happens to know French culture, uh, I've never seen it, but I wonder if all bars in France have boiled eggs. Did anyone <laughs> see that? I cannot speak to that. I cannot speak it's, to I that. I mean, if you come to to England on, in a pub, you'll generally find little bowls of nuts because that makes you thirsty and you have more drinks. That kind of makes sense. I think they do the same in America from what I've seen. Right. There's always been pickled eggs at Moe's Tavern in The Simpsons, so maybe that's the same thing. It gets you thirsty. Yeah, but boiled eggs, you've got to like uncrack these ones and everything. You've got to do all the work. I could just see the floor is just scattered with eggshell. <laughs> Guy at the end of the night is sweeping up eggshells. This seems like a weird choice. L- listeners in France, let me know. Do you have boiled eggs everywhere? I don't know. And also let us know about the yellow cigarettes. Yeah, another another bizarre choice. Did um, did anyone get uh, Baby Driver vibes from this? Um, I know much later film, but yeah, yeah. that's the, that's where my brain went. Well, I mean, in terms of like, I know Edgar Wright wanted to use a lot of older school techniques for shooting his car chases. So in that sense, yes, for sure. And also just kind of the heist concept. I mean, I, I can see a bits of it, but I mean, Wright is such a different kind of director visually that i just it, it never it never would have occurred to me to put them together just from an aesthetic standpoint maybe maybe from a few of those little plotting details or you know the things around the edges but you know, this is this is a very different stylist i can see that yeah like frankenheimer is so old school just in terms of his craftsmanship that I don't know that there's like a newer director who's really trying to evoke the type of thing he even did even at the time, I mean, again, as I said, this was his penultimate film. Like, in terms of his real impact years, they were behind him. This felt like kind of a burst of life kind of at the end here. And unfortunately, you know, as I said, he closed out with Reindeer Games. Had this been his final film, it really would have been a great film to go out on. Did anyone find it slightly strange that Sean Bean disappeared? I I actually loved that bit. And again, this is, this is perhaps because I was so fascinated with how bad Seamus was that... I just like the idea that here's this, we put together the team and that's the expectation. That's sort of a genre expectation. You put together the team, they're all great at what they do. They're all going to work together. And we instantly see this guy is terrible. He has no idea what he's doing. And I love that that's one of the things that Sam ferrets out is this guy is going to just, he's going to ruin it if he's left to, to be part of this group. So get him out of here as soon as possible. I remember at the time being very disappointed because I had loved Sean Bean and Goldeneye and had gone on sort of a uh, deep dive into the world of Sean Bean. I always had this thing when I was younger and, and still to a certain degree do where I would discover a character actor and then want to like check out all their work. I did the same thing with William Peterson. You know, uh, Scott, you talked about To Live and Die in L.A. <laughs> earlier. I mean, that was another actor I became obsessed with at a certain point. And I remember going to this movie, so excited for Sean Bean because I loved him as Trevelyan in Goldeneye. And I was disappointed to see him leave early, and I think I was thrown by (laughs) the sheer sweaty, panicked performance he was given. But it also robs us of something that I think would be a cliche at this point, which is the we've got to kill Sean Bean early kind of idea. (laughs) This movie doesn't give you that, and I love that. 
I'm trying to think how they would have offed him at that point. What would be Sean Bean's demise in Ronin? I mean, his character was so pathetic, it would have been a very sad, pitiful mercy killing, I think. I mean, he, he could have been taken out by the by the sniper at, by the bridge. That would have been the easiest way. If, if we're going for pathetic, maybe he like trips on a rock and then bangs his head and dies from like the, the blunt force injury on the ground. <laughs> it's quite possible, <laughs> given the luck of that yeah. character. <laughs> yeah. Well, what about you, Cam? Did you have any sort of final thoughts on the film? Um, the only other thing I noticed was that really jumped out to me that I enjoyed was De Niro's character has a thing about repetition that he does throughout this movie. It's a weird little character quirk. I don't know if that came from Mamet or the original script, but just the fact De Niro will come up with a line and just keep repeating it. Like when he's, um, wanting Sean Bean to, you know, redraw the, um, the little, um, graphic on the whiteboard and he's saying, draw it again, draw it again draw it again and he keeps doing that and he does that throughout the movie where he'll lock on to some sort of line and then repeat it over and over again i thought it was really effective for that character and kind of underlines probably an obsessive attention to detail that he would have with his job that that does feel whether it is definitely a mammoth thing i couldn't say but it sure feels like it that's that's very characteristic to me of the, the kind of thing that he would do in that just to make that evident and and we do see that detail oriented you know the the questions that he keeps asking that he's not getting the answers to is just you know he wants every piece of information he can get and that that's maybe he is a little bit ocd yeah it's quite possible and i think mamet is very good at understanding the worlds he's working in whether it's you know house of games or glengarry glenn ross it would make sense to me if he is punching up this script and, you know, his role was to boost the De, Niro, the De Niro character, that he would want to bring a bit of authenticity to the idea of a guy who's been in the CIA working as a top operative. So I, I can totally buy that. Now I, now I actually can't stop thinking about Joe Montana being the being the Sam and wondering <laughs> what that would have looked like. <laughs> could have worked. Could have worked for sure. I mean, I think De Niro is the one that gets this movie, um, you know, greenlit and put on yes, many thousands sure. of movie screens. I don't know that Joe Montana would have done that, but it would have been a very interesting indie film with much smaller car chases. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this question is more for Cam, but Scott, by all means, chime in if you know uh, our back, uh, sort of our... Uh, our previous episodes but is this our film that has the most amount of bond actors that isn't a bond film i think so because yeah you've got you know obviously michael lonsdale jonathan price and sean bean i i think it might yeah all i can say is that's delicious mm. <laughs> <laughs> um okay well, uh, what about you scott any sort of final thoughts on the film i again there's there's just that interesting revelation and this is one of the reasons i wish i could re-watch films more often because you're always going to discover something different and especially after this much time just to think that it it's it's perhaps more interesting it certainly seems to be more interesting to me than it does to you scott as a just a character piece because that stuff did work for me um so i'm i'm just i was interested in finding that the things i didn't remember actually held my interest too uh, yeah, I think this film requires you to buy in to at least Robert De Niro, but um, Jean Reno, if not. And I just, I don't know if I was really on board for it. And I, that's probably what held me back. But I'm glad you both enjoyed it. It is a very interesting film in that it has very, very flashy, extravagant action sequences. 
and very subdued character work. So it is kind of an interesting merging of the two. It works for me for sure, but I can totally understand someone who did not feel that way. I wonder if it's like an approachability thing. Like Maybe that has something to do with the, the returns at the cinema. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know how well it was reviewed at the time. Um, it was fairly well reviewed. It, it's a movie that you hear, I think, spoken about with more fondness now by the people that really champion it than at the time. Like, I recall a lot of, you know, sort of like three star, you know, B grade kind of reviews where they were like, "Yep, it delivers action." Um, but I don't think they were really as. I don't know that they were talking about the character work as much back then. It felt like it was more about John Frankenheimer making a really, you know, kind of ripping action film. Well, I guess that brings us on beautifully to the knock list. Now, Cam, as we have Scott as a guest, just could you briefly explain for Scott and the listeners just about what the knock list is? Yes, the knock list is the pantheon of the all-time great spy films uh, for the Spy Hearts podcast. Essentially, what the knock list is, is if someone came to you and is like, I want a list of all killer, no filler spy films, you could give them the knock list and they would walk away happy and not be disappointed with a single entry. And yeah, we've done close to 50 films at this point, and I think only about 15 have made it. Yeah, that's uh, right. I mean, Men in Black International didn't make it on. Spoiler for that episode. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone knew going into it, but uh, hey, it was a journey nonetheless. But okay, so question time. Is Ronin making the knock list? Scott, you're our guest and you get first vote. Is it making the list or not for you? Well, I'm going to take a very quick diversion to preface what I'm going to say, which is I'm also a big sports fan. And I was listening to a podcast recently about the Basketball Hall of Fame and one of the hosts basically making the argument that it was becoming too easy. And I and I think I am in the category of halls of fame should be very restrictive. It shouldn't be just, hey, this guy was really good for two years. No, that's not good enough. And so I have that same feeling about pantheons of any genre, of any kind of acting, of anything. It's like, there's, you know, I'm thinking in terms of a, you know, Mount Rushmore or, you know, something, a very limited number rather than, so by that, by those criteria, no, I mean, it's a very, I, I enjoyed the experience of rewatching it i think it's really solid but there's a little bit more required for me to put it on that next plateau of the all-timers okay that sounds like a pretty firm no what about you cam i was kind of waffling on this one um and that i i kind of agree like there are elements of it that i think are a little shaky you know as we've talked about like the um the whole romantic subplot being kind of a driving force for this movie with the de niro and mcahone characters it just doesn't work but I was also, I don't know, so sucked into the world of it that I was kind of leaning towards a soft yes. So I think just because it embodies so much of what I love about character-driven action films, I'm going to give it a soft yes. Okay. Um, I think my answer's probably been telegraphed already in the episode, but... <laughs> no suspense here, folks. <laughs> yeah, sorry about that, guys. I, I, can't, I can't build up to it. Um, yeah, it's a no from me um but you know not a not a smackdown no it's not one of those films that i just want to you know claw my eyes out after watching i just don't think i connected with it i think it was maybe a bit too slow for me and i didn't really connect with the characters so much maybe that's my fault for not watching it twice i've learned my lesson i will never break the uh to watch scott uh pattern again but <laughs> 
yeah, it just didn't do enough for me to get over the finish line of making the knock list. Um, yeah, I, I, that's all I have to say. But but if you haven't seen the film, I would probably say check it out. It's definitely got some enjoyable performances from Robert De Niro and uh, Stellan Skarsgård, but probably my two favourites. I actually went and bought the Blu-ray immediately after watching it. It seems like it's more of a firm yes from you, mate, to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. It's, it's making Cam's list. That's right. My own personal list. It's a very lonely <laughs> list. Spinning off into a very sad solo podcast soon. <laughs> Just you shouting into a microphone as usual. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, there you have it, folks. It's uh, two no's and a yes from Cam. And as such, Ronin is not making the knock list. And the file on the movie is classified. Scott. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. Um, we, uh, it, It's always nice to have a guest on that uh, has some stature and actually knows what they're talking about when it comes to films, because we clearly don't. <laughs> um, but you know, for the listeners, where can they find more from you? Uh, you can find me at cityweekly.net. That's C-I-T-Y-W-E-E-K-L-Y.net. I'm still doing the uh, the film reviews there as i have been for 20 plus years and you can find me on twitter at scott renshaw and you also do a patreon right for writings more on disney stuff i i have i'm i've kind of put that a little bit on hiatus just to work on some other things for the moment but uh you know i'm 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 always in the disney realm and especially it's a, it's been a weird time for someone who's particularly a disney parks person with you know the world being what it was so that's that's something i'm diving back into now as things are reopening if we ever do a one of our dinosaurs is missing redux, I'll give you a call. <laughs> I would be delighted. <laughs> I'm not sure about that. I'm really not sure about that. You might go missing if I email you about it. <laughs> Thank you again to Scott Renshaw for joining us. Um, he has a letterbox that Cam likes to stalk him on, and you can find Scott Renshaw at letterbox.com slash Scott Renshaw. And Cam, before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a quick message from the team over at the Brew Crime podcast. Play that clip. This is Brew Crime, a craft beer and true crime podcast. I'm Mike. I'm Beck. And I'm Nina. And we're your hosts. We pair a true crime story with a craft beer that Nina will probably hate. Yeah, probably. Whatever. You can find our show on all your favorite podcast apps. And if you can't find it, contact us and we'll try and change that. We can be found at brewcrime.com or on all social media platforms at brewcrime. Join us as we discuss the horrible crimes that surround us and try not to giggle. Yep, that's the brew crime. Now, I'm going to take brew to mean a cup of tea because that's what it means here. Uh, I'm assuming it's more to do with beers, but I think to I, I think I prefer it's tea. Me too. It just seems nicer, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm not a drinker, so I, I tea is actually I don't drink either one of these things. So you are the worst I need like person. A, I, <laughs> you are no fun. I need the water cast. <laughs> That's your solo podcast. Yeah, talking about water every week. Like, what's the difference between Evian and Poland Springs, and start delving into the world of bottled waters? Filtered, yes or no? Is it worth it? Mm, let's find out. Mm. Here, I've got the latest controversies on the water industry. <laughs> But Cam, what are we doing next week? We are taking a little bit of a change of pace. We are headed up to 2003 to tackle the second Charlie's Angels film, Full Throttle. I mean, that's a, that's a Charlie's Angels title right there, isn't it? 
Especially after that first one. Full throttle. Yeah, so there you go, folks. We have Charlie's Angels full throttle coming next week. And we have another very special guest joining us, but I'll save that till then. Uh, so your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch 2003's Mukji-directed Charlie's Angels full throttle and join us next week. Uh, you can, of course, find out more about the knock list at letterbox.com slash spyhards. Unfortunately, Ronan didn't make it, but there's plenty of films that have and are definitely worth watching again. And don't forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, if you don't mind, I'm going to pass out.